You're listening to the Faith 2020 Podcast, helping you see 2020 clearly through the lens of faith. Now here's your host, Michael Ware. This is the Faith 2020 Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ware. We have something of a crossover episode for you this week in that both the Church Politics Podcast and the Faith 2020 Podcast feature an interview with Philip and Jasmine Holmes uh, that I'm really excited to bring to you. Uh, what's going to be different about Faith 2020 pod- Podcast is we're going to talk about Faith 2020 before we get to the interview. Look, there there are so many levels to everything that's happened over the last few weeks. We're, we're, we're not going to be able to discuss everything that's happened, and we're not going to be able to discuss the things that we do discuss from every angle. Uh, there are really two topics that I want to cover. First, and there's been so much writing on this, um, so I'll just try and provide s- s- some insight that perhaps others um, have, have not shared. Uh, it, it was <laughs> infuriating and surreal and unbelievable to watch President Trump's Rose Garden press conference on Monday. That was just hours after he uh, quoted, he says he doesn't know he was quoting, but if you're president of the United States, uh, A, you shouldn't be tweeting out that American citizens are going to be shot at one in the morning. That That's one. Uh, number two, uh, it would be nice if the president of the United States had a basic level of the history of this country. That That would seem to be a qualifier for a quality that you would expect in a president that say a president wouldn't say something like when the looting starts, the shooting starts and be completely unaware of the racial racist history of that phrase. So I, I, I don't, I don't accept the out that, that he, he just wasn't aware. Well, he heard it from somewhere. So if he wasn't aware of the, exact origin of the saying who did he hear it from that's repeating slogans and sayings from racist public officials at the height of the civil rights movement but so he he tweets that out and he gives a press conference in the rose garden and then he says like a teaser in one of the most direct appropriations of his reality tv past as if he was uh, leading into a commercial break. He says something along the lines of, uh, and now I'm about to uh, go uh, pay homage to a very important site. It's not the exact quote, but it, it was something something about, it. he didn't say where he was going. No one knew, uh, no one in the press knew where he was going. And there's been reporting that Hope Hicks paid very close close attention to the the optics and the how this whole scene would look and so that's part of it they tell tells the press going to going to go somewhere and you'll just find out where and you're watching the coverage you see the zoom out and all of a sudden you see well a, as the president speaking from the rose garden you see all of a sudden this conflict in what was basically peaceful protest all of a sudden People are being pushed out. And then as you get an aerial shot, I mean, it's important to... So I I worked 
my office when I was at the White House was on Lafayette Park. Um, I would take my work calls walking through that park uh, during the Christmas season when I was working late in the office. I would walk out of the office and see uh, it's really an idyllic place, especially in winter, because lining Lafayette Park are the offices that used to be the White House faith-based office. Also includes a White House Historical Association where you can go in and buy the White House Christmas ornaments and that and that, that kind of thing. It's really an idyllic setting, and Lafayette Park is is beautiful. And and, and then of course you know I, I made the trip eight, ten, twelve times a day uh, from Lafayette Park from from my office on Jack Jackson Place is one of the streets that lines Lafayette Park, just right across the street to the White House. It's from that perspective in which I've seen, I've been, I've been watching those streets, which obviously have meaning to all Americans and really everyone in the world, <laughs> that, that, that space in front of the White House. That's why it was such a significant thing when after 9-11, uh, they decided to block off Pennsylvania Avenue. Because prior to that, you, you could drive down Pennsylvania Avenue. It's been one of the important things about the White House, that the access that people have to to being so close to where the president lives. It's not like that in other countries. And so I've, I've been thinking about that. I, I also view this from the perspective of uh, I helped organize multiple presidential visits to St. John's Episcopal Church. And I, I have intimate knowledge of the security protocol for when uh, a, a president walks from the White House to St. John's because I was involved in planning precisely that walk. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, you know, it's been so interesting to hear people opine and and question and, and wonder, well, 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 this is actually a process that uh, people uh, are familiar with. And as you saw the aerial view down, and I recognize, I, I thought Lafayette Park is completely clear. And I, I thought, He's going to St. John's. He's going to St. John's Church. And I knew immediately the cost, the financial cost, the human cost of what it would take and what it did take for that photo op to be made possible. I mean, let, let's suggest that, let, let's give the, let's assume for a moment that no one was hurt in that clearing out process, that it didn't lead to frustration and incitement that spilled over throughout the night. Let, let, let's, let's just, let, let's pretend for the moment that even that didn't happen. It, it would still be extraordinary at the height of a protest for the president to decide that not for a reason of national security, not to, um, advance some concrete good of the American people, but for a for a photo op that he was going to use law enforcement, use uh, officials, use the Secret Service to unnecessarily move people from where they were protesting out to a different area, like that alone. That, that alone is obscene. But then, of course, we also know that 
force force was used to do this. In other words, it it it, it would be even if it had worked that it could be announced so that everyone could hear it and everyone just decided even though we would have no expectation of this because they're they're protesters that everyone would just think oh great yeah we'll 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 just move wherever the president needs us to move even if it had happened with no snafus no anything at all it still would have been obscene the fact that the president knew that that isn't how it works the fact that the president knew that force would have to be used for a photo op, it's doubly obscene. And then for this photo op to be a vacuous, self-aggrandizing, vapid manipulation of the Church of St. John's. And we'll get to, to St. John's uh, and the Episcopal Church's perspective on this. But to amidst protests and the sounds of anti-protest uh, gear, weaponry, whatever term you want to use to be used, for the president to be holding up a Bible, not reading it, as Liz Brunick pointed out in the New York Times, not reading it, not praying uh, over it, not talking with clergy at the church, a, a church that, by the way, had been aiding and providing water and resources to protesters throughout the day and throughout the week. Not checking in with them on, on how that's going, how the church is actually serving serving people who need help. Not checking in with the church about, hey, what, what might Christian resources have to offer in this time of turmoil? What, what might scripture have to, have to say about the murder of George Floyd? No, none of that. He apparently takes his defense secretary and several other officials, doesn't tell them where they're going, has uh, military officials walking through Lafayette Park like it's a war zone and stands in front of St. John's with a photo op. Uh, reporters were trying to... So I'll be honest. Um, I saw the Bible and I, I said to Melissa, my wife, I said... And this was in the, in the heat of the moment. I mean, I mean, so I, I just want to be clear here, right? Like there is something especially obscene and, and manipulative because it's so trivial and because it's trivializing scripture that what the president did at St. John's, it, it I'll, I'll just have to admit it does get under my skin in a, in a very particular way. Um, it's not the most grievous thing that's happened uh, over the last week. And we'll talk about. Some, some of those other things. But, but I just want to put my cards out on the table. Um, I've spent my life thinking about uh, and helping a president treat religion and religious institutions with respect and with a, with a sense of propriety. And so it, it, is, it is personal to me to see a president be so willing to transparently and vacuously and selfishly use sacred symbols for his own political benefit to at least what he thinks is his own political benefit. But so he gets up there, there's a photo op with some officials there, Mark Meadows, who should be ashamed, William Barr, who should be ashamed. One thing could be said about, said about Mike Pence, at least he didn't, maybe he just wasn't invited, but however it happened, at, at least he wasn't there 
for this performance. Reporters ask, uh, so, so I'm watching with Melissa, see the Bible, and I said to Melissa, I, I swear, if that is Lincoln's Bible, um, <laughs> you know, I told her I don't know what I'm going to do. But it wasn't. And, and we know it wasn't Lincoln's Bible because reporters asked, is that your Bible? And he said, it's a Bible. Look, look, this is what I'll say. And I got a a legal advisor to the Trump White House decided to get into a little Twitter scuffle with me over this paint, painting tr- Trump's photo op in front of St. John's as some kind of historic stand for the church, even though he didn't say he didn't say anything meaningful there. And look, here's here's what I'll say. There are going to be uh, Christians who have been apologists for this president who are going to be like Chuck Colson and spend much of the rest of their lives trying to make up for and, and seeing how corrupted they were. But then I, I also think there are going, and, and there are to this day, aides to Nixon who still don't understand, think that they did anything wrong. And there are some Christians who have been a part of this who will continue to grift off of this president's shameful behavior, his selfish behavior, his abdication of responsibility, his repudiation of public service. And, and it's it's just a real it's just a real shame. You know, for everything you could say about um everything that that some folks say about the Episcopal Church, I'm 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 uh, grateful for how swiftly uh, Bishop Bud of the Episcopal Church in DC spoke out and made it clear that the Bible won't be used as a prop by this president, that the Christian church that hasn't been co-opted into political subservience won't allow itself to be used as a prop for this president, that it won't allow the uh, vandalism of Christian churches to be politicized for one man's gain, that they won't allow the church to be set against the protesters who are protesting for justice. And so Bud put out a statement the very next day showing what a political charade all of this is without a word about racism, without a word about so much of what Pope John Paul II stood up for. Uh, Trump went to the shrine uh, in, in the D.C. area and uh, signed an executive order in the middle of this week on international religious freedom, which I'm all for. And by the way, I'll just say it, um, talking to advocates, and I've been involved in international religious freedom, there's some good stuff in that EO. So, uh, so you know, we, we could <laughs> tip of the cap to this administration for, for doing doing something, accomplishing one positive thing this week. Uh, that that doesn't make up for, and a little parade over to St. John's doesn't make up for the way this president has exacerbated divisions and tensions in this country rather than seeking to alleviate them. doesn't make up for the fact that this president has been trying to bully governors and mayors into violence against protesters, against the threat of federal repercussions, should they not act as he desires. And look, Tony Perkins and those, they'll always find some way, and that's disheartening, whatever. But look, they've shown their cards. It may turn out that Trump overstepped 
by using the word of God in this way. There are, there are some Christians who, do, who have not believed it was their role to speak directly about politics, that they didn't have the expertise. And I, I sympathize with that approach, right? Like we could talk about it. There are dangers to quietism, but, but I understand pastors not wanting to speak into political elections and current events and pretend that they have expertise that that they don't. It's a different story when politics is talking about you. And, and so we've seen that from significant figures who have just said, this is enough. The, the, the president doesn't get to do this. By his very behavior, he's been tearing apart churches in this country. But to, to, to actually invoke uh, scripture, the, the, the Bible, the word of God, as a talisman at this moment in our country's history, just people are, no, that's, that's too far. We may not have a, uh, you know, it's, a, a lot of these folks think they don't necessarily have a political mandate. They certainly have a biblical one. And so President Trump may have crossed the line. We've seen, for instance, the American Bible Society, which works very hard to stay out of politics. They launched they're giving away free Bibles for two weeks and have launched a campaign that's basically around the idea that the Bible is more than a symbol. Like that's directly stepping into the president's misuse and misappropriation of, of scripture. All right. I, I'm going to, I'm going to stop. <laughs> I'm going to stop there. The, the, the second piece I wanted to talk about was this PRI poll out today that uh, shows Trump's approval rating among uh, white Catholics to be at 37%. And, you know, for those who aren't aware of the, the, the kind of background here and, and exactly what that means, uh, let, let me try and break down these numbers for you a little. Catholics generally have been an important bellwether in presidential elections. Barack Obama won the Catholic vote in 2008 and 2012. According to the immediate exit polls after 2016, Clinton lost the Catholic vote. There have been some people who have worked through a different sort of a different set of data and have run the numbers differently who have argued, who argued, you know, months after the election that perhaps Clinton maybe won the Catholic vote. I, I kind of view that as sort of rationalizing and sort of we should judge these things by the the, the, the same set of numbers. Uh, John Kerry quite infamously lost the Catholic vote in 2004. And so it's been, hasn't been the deciding factor, but, but it matches up kind of in the same way that, you know, Ohio has been a bellwether state. And by the way, it's not a coincidence. There are a lot of Catholics in Ohio. So the Catholic vote overall has been very tight. We're talking like 52, 48 kind of, kind of breakdowns. What's gotten wider and what hasn't been tremendously competitive, although, you know, not, you know, it hasn't been a, um, a landslide by any means, but white Catholics over the last three, four presidential elections have gone he uh, more heavily for Republicans. We're generally talking like 57, 60% of white Catholics, depending on, on the election, go for Republicans. And so this PRI poll, and I should say the other the other caveat here is, you know, we saw before 2016, and there have been other numbers even leading up to this election that have shown 
approval ratings among white evangelicals, for instance, you know, be it, you know, 60%, which, you know, we haven't really seen in a concrete way, white evangelical support for Trump be tested since the 2016 election. So like, we'll, we'll see. And that's a whole other discussion. For those of you who follow me on Twitter and know that I got into a little discussion about, about that. And there are elements of that conversation that frustrate me. Uh, the, the, the upshot there is, um, that uh, to say that Trump is not going to lose the evangelical vote is not the same thing as uh, suggesting that he can't lose significant numbers of evangelicals that are in in an electorally significant way. In other words, the debate about evangelicals, and in some ways the debate about Catholics, although I think it's a bit more fluid there, the debate about uh, evangelicals is is not that there's going to a majority of evangelicals are going to vote for Joe Biden. The point is that evangelicals make up over a quarter of the electorate. And if even 3%, 5% swing Biden's way or swing away from Trump, that's a game changer, electorally speaking. Yeah, this is one poll. The other thing about this PRI poll is it is approval rating, not head to head against Biden. So, there could be 37% of white Catholics who approve of Trump who would, and, and, you know, but 50% of white Catholics might still vote for Trump when it's a head to head choice between Biden. All those caveats said, it's just so vital to, to note that if Biden wins the white Catholic vote by a vote, <laughs> by a percentage point, he wins the election. Like, like I am, uh, I listeners know I'm pretty uh, tentative around predictions. Uh, I try to only make them when I, I think there's a good chance I'm going to be right. Uh, like I made during the primary, especially around Super Tuesday. Well, this is another one of those predictions. If Joe Biden wins the white Catholic vote, uh, he is, he is winning the election pretty easily for sure. If Biden approaches 55, 57% of the white Catholic vote, if he approaches 60% of the white Catholic vote, it is a landslide like we haven't seen in this century. And so that's why the Trump campaign has to see these numbers and be very concerned. We've talked in previous episodes about the fact that both campaigns really are, I think, have identified this appropriately. I think Trump was on the Catholics in the importance of Catholics in 2016 in a way that the Democratic nominee was not, and it's a big reason why they lost. Joe Biden does not appear to be making that mistake. They have a long way to go, but with the staff they have around him, with Biden's personal disposition, with um, with, with just who he is, with the way that they're talking about, with the messages they're putting out, uh, the, the Biden campaign is running a campaign that is at this point, leaps and bounds ahead of the 2016 nominee in terms of general openness and attractiveness to Catholics. And so those numbers are just something to keep an eye on. It'll be interesting to see if Pew replicates uh, those numbers. And obviously, we need to see some head-to-head numbers. Uh, Right now, given a choice between Biden and Trump, where do white Catholics stand? And, you know, this white Catholics number is something that's, that's been making a lot of headlines since it came out. I just want to reassert that the Hispanic Catholic vote, while not as large as the white Catholic vote, is, is 
really vital. Like at the end of the day, Biden doesn't need to win the white Catholic vote. He does need to win or or be neck and neck among Catholics overall, I think, to, to feel really good about his chances. And it's very important that the Biden campaign understands that you can't just slot Hispanic Catholics in the Hispanic box. <laughs> that you need to also consider them as Catholics. And that's just going to be... You, you could apply the same uh, rule to, to black Protestants. You could apply the same rule, obviously, to Hispanic evangelicals. Uh, that, that, um, that'll be a deciding factor in this campaign. Uh, I feel very strongly about it. Look, if, if the last week has made anything clear, it's that Donald Trump understands that his, whatever chances he has at reelection, which, you know, as I'm very careful to say on this show, I would not, don't discredit his chances. That We have a long way to go. But for whatever chances he has, it relies on the religious vote. And specifically, it relies on wielding religion to his maximal benefit. There's a chance that he could do that, and it might still not be enough for him to win given other circumstances. Uh, the, the argument that I would be making is that the Biden, the, the Biden campaign shouldn't be taking that chance. They shouldn't be taking the chance that they could let Biden uh, or that they could let Trump use religion just as he wants and that they'll sort of win despite that. The Biden campaign has to be attentive to the way that Trump wants to use religion and undermine his ability to do that. All right. Again, there is such a tremendous amount more that we could discuss. I, I think we get into quite a bit in the conversation with Philip and Jasmine. And in, in future weeks, you know, we've talked a, a significant amount on this show about the black vote and the way the issues like criminal justice reform will be affecting the electorate. It was a major theme during the primary. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot more to discuss. It was a very religion-heavy couple of weeks when we talk about presidential politics, and again, this this podcast is unapologetically about faith in 2020. <laughs> uh, and so this is a, a political podcast spe spe uh, specifically about the presidential election. And so th that's just what this is. Uh, and even with that narrow view, like there's just a lot more that we could discuss, but we're not going to be able to do that. I've, I've probably talked uh, too, too long in this opening uh, to begin with, but I thought it was well, frankly, it was important for me to just talk about some of this, uh, some of this stuff. That I, I, I just haven't seen anything so blatant and so disrespectful as, as what Trump did at St. John's this week. Um, and, and hopefully some of what I shared was, was helpful to you. What I know is going to be helpful to you is this conversation with Philip and Jasmine. And I'm going to introduce you to them right after this break. This is the Faith 2020 podcast. So glad to bring you this interview with Philip and Jasmine Holmes. Uh, Jasmine Holmes has written for the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, Fathom Mag, Christianity Today, and The Witness. She's author of Mother to Son, Letters to a Black Boy on Identity and Hope. She is also a contributing author to the, the great book, Identity Theft, Reclaiming the Truth of Our Identity in Christ and His Testimonies. 
My Heritage, Women of Color on the Word of God. Just a wonderful project. Would ask that you support both of those works. Uh, Jasmine teaches humanities in a classical Christian school in Jackson, Mississippi, where she and her husband, Philip, are parenting two young sons. Uh, Philip Holmes is the Vice President for Institutional Communications at Reformed Theological Seminary. He's editor-in-chief of Ministry and Leadership Magazine and owner of Highest Good, a digital marketing and strategy agency. He's also a co-founder and former Vice President of the Reformed African American Network, which is now the Witness Black Christian Collective. And shout out to our friends over at The Witness. Phillips written for the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God and Lifeway Voices. He and his wife, uh, Jasmine, again, have two sons, Walter Wynn and Ezra Langston. Just love, just love those names. Beautiful boys. And they are members of Redeemer Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, here's my conversation with Philip and Jasmine. Philip, Jasmine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for uh, for joining me. Thank Absolutely. you for having Thank us. You. Yeah, it's uh, I've admired both of y'all from afar for uh, quite some time, and uh, you know thought thought it would be a, a great opportunity to have you both on on the podcast. Really want to have a an open conversation. Uh, so much has transpired in the last week, the last couple of weeks. Uh, but what has transpired in the last week or couple of weeks isn't an aberration isn't isn't something new in american life uh, but the reaction to it to it in some ways has been has been new and, and striking but but before before we sort of get into dynamics would love for listeners to be able to be a bit more acquainted with with uh, who you are and so would would love for for you to just share a bit uh, both of you about uh, your work and and your life and then then we'll 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 go from there Jasmine, I'll let you go first. Ladies first. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, so I am married to Philip. I have two little boys. Um, Wynn will be four tomorrow in Langston. Oh, wow. is, I know. It went by so fast. Um, <laughs> and our youngest is almost 18 months old. Um, I'm a teacher. I teach history at a classical Christian school. And I'm a writer. I just published a book called um, Mother to Son, Letters to a Black Boy on Identity and Hope um, with IVP. And yeah. I haven't been writing much besides that's been taking up most of my <laughs> life recently. But um, before that, I kind of freelanced and wrote all over the place. Yeah, I, 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 I forgot. But as soon as you said it, I remembered that that yeah, your second was born just like a month after my baby girl. My my girl's uh, oh wow, turned eighteen months. Yes, May twenty fourth, and so I I remember feeling like uh, feeling like we were tracking tracking a bit, uh, and so it's it's a great age. Eighteen months is pretty pretty good. It's so fun. <laughs> yeah. uh, it was it's great, and again, I would encourage people to to go out and 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 check out Jasmine's book, uh, Philip. Uh, what what about what about you? I know you recently took on a, a new role. Yeah, so about two years ago, um, I joined the Reformed Theological Seminary um, at the time as director of communications and marketing, but uh, now I serve as vice president for institutional communications uh, for RTS. Uh, and I've been in that job for, I guess, three years now, actually, uh, for about, I guess, 2017. September of 2017 was when I joined. 
Um, apart from that, though, I also uh, have a digital marketing uh, and strategy agency called Highest Good Media um, that the Lord has been gracious to allow me to do on the side. Um, and it's been fun. So I tend to try to work with uh, nonprofits and small businesses who uh, I feel like are making positive impacts uh, on yeah. society, uh, trying to basically use what the Lord has given me uh, to try to leverage those uh, gifts and skill sets um, for just for, for the greater good, for um, to see society and, and humans flourishing and, and prospering. Um, I'm also involved in locally um, in a few uh, political advocacy groups. Um, and I also do some freelance writing uh, on the side whenever I have the time. All right. That's, that's, that's great. Was able to uh, check out your, your firm a bit and that looks like great work. I mean, it's, it, I, you know, my, my work in some ways has been similar in, in that, you know, it's just such a blessing to be able to come alongside ministries that, you know, are doing good work and just feel like you're able to, to boost them a bit and help them reach more people and, uh, and expand the good work they're already doing. It's, uh, I, I've really, really enjoyed that. And it seems like you're thriving in that space too. All right. So folks are, have, have a little more sort of sense of, of where y'all are coming from. I mean, I, I just love to open up the conversation. I, I mean, I, look, we weren't going to do an episode this week, but just heard from so many uh, folks who who wanted to hear an episode, and I, I thought Philip and Jasmine would be wonderful, wonderful guests. And uh, I, I think people are just wrestling with with how the killing of George Floyd, what they're seeing in cities around the nation, what they're yeah. learning about the country, um, the the things that they're experiencing in their own social environments. Uh, I think people are just processing what this means and again on, on multiple levels as as individuals as, as as parents and sons and daughters and and uncles and and aunts uh uh and then and then living you know as citizens as 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 part of um uh, as part of a, a, a nation obviously people have been thinking about their citizenship in different ways and so I, i'd love to just you know, would love to talk about all three of those levels and, and happy to start kind of kind of with what's most pressing on um, uh, your guys heart and what, what y'all are discussing around the kitchen table. Uh, and um, but but how have you been processing and what do you think is most pressing for the church to consider in light of the last, you know, the, the last week? Uh, I think. One of the main things that Philip and I have been talking about is the way that the church tends to divide along party lines, uh, even when we're talking about human life. So mm. we kind of put our political affiliation before people um, on all sides. I think that happens, but it's especially glaring in the case of um, George Floyd's murder, Ahmaud Arbery's murder, just seeing people um, who are so doggedly anti-liberal and have so decided that um, to prioritize Black life is automatically liberal, that they're just like, they're blocking off um, any kind of option um, for a conservatively voting maybe even Republican Republican person, uh, dare I say it, uh, to care about yeah. Black lives and to affirm that Black lives matter um, and to embrace. I mean, there are um, 
several conservative policies that could absolutely benefit the Black community, but it's not even something that we think about taking advantage of um, as conservatives often because we're so content to just let Democrats and quote unquote liberals like have that. That's their thing. Mm-hmm. So we can't we can't care about that. We we are only supposed to care about the officer in this. We can't care about that other person because that's what that's what they do over there. Um, and it's just the tribalism keeps us from seeing the truth or even listening to other perspectives. Right. Right. T- seeing seeing everyone and even being able to I think I think that's I think that's absolutely true. It's not just that folks' ideas tend to favor c- certain groups, but it's it's that the the parties seem only interested in talking to ha- half the country. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think I think I think that's right. And and you know I think what's especially pressing and we talk about this often and campaigning on these podcasts, but the way that that model sets an example for the church that Christians often seem too uh too easily to follow i think is a is is a real a, a real problem have, have philip have, have have you seen that in um in the response of uh i, I guess christians but then you you know sort of pu- public figures generally um over over the last couple of weeks as well yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree with everything uh, Jasmine said. You know, one of the things, this is one of the things that grieves me about um, Christians and and the current political climate is high, how tribal uh, it is. My wife will tell you that uh, I'm, I'm always trying to be the guy who's understanding both sides of the argument. Um, and what I found so often is that People don't care about truth. Uh, they care more about making sure that there's no egg on their camp's face when it's all yeah. said and done. Yeah. So when so when new things come up, uh, new information is revealed. Um, you know, the 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 popular thing today is to say, "Hey, let's wait for the facts." And usually, what ends up happening happen, happening when we wait for the facts and the facts actually come out is that. Um, then they tell you you're overreacting, right? When the facts are actually in, huh. um, and and I've just watched this narrative over and over, and it's not, you know, and I, because I'm I'm that guy, it's not a one sided issue, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, yeah. This is not a, a problem that is um, only in the conservative camp. Um, I think it's also a problem that is in many progressive camps as well, um, yeah. and when you live in a society and when you live in a culture today where um, having extreme stances and uh, attacking uh, your audience's uh, opponent uh, can be uh, beneficial to you, whether it's, whether it's financial uh, or whether it's um, the attempt to acquire power. Um, I think that we should be very skeptical uh, of people who have made a platform out of these things, especially when um, there's there's signs that they're being inconsistent in their standards. Um, yeah. So I, I, I feel like I haven't I, 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 I'm grieved for the church because I don't think that we're as discerning as we should be. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm also grieved, too, that on both sides, Christians have yet to lead. We're always following. 
Uh, mm. We're always co-opting what the world does. And that always is probably extreme. Uh, I can hear I can hear my wife tapping me right now, but I, I do think that we <laughs> we can be we, we we can be followers when the world really needs us to be prophets and leaders, and we need to say something, say things to the culture, and say things internally to ourselves that are transcendent, uh, not just adopting what the world does. Yeah, Jasmine, what 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 kind of resources, what kind of structures, what kind of supports do you think are are needed to facilitate? You know what Philip's talking about, uh, Christians who are who are sort of uh, leading the conversation, or at least not being not being led by the standards other people are setting. But like, obviously, this is happening for 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 a reason that doesn't it, it, what Philip's describing doesn't happen on its own. So, so what does it look like to to create uh, systems and culture and, and support people who who want to approach things in a different in a different way. Is that, is that possible in your mind? Yeah, I definitely think so. I think that one of the major resources, and this is my inner teacher coming out, um, is education on the topics beyond just what I've noticed a lot is that people wait, sit around and wait for somebody else to do the research for them so they can post (laughs) whatever link, you know? And, um, I mean, I've been guilty of the same thing. And uh, for instance, uh, a link came out, um, from, I, I want to say Washington Post about um, the number of black men killed by police versus the number of white men killed by police. And every single, like I went down my timeline and every single person was posting this link. And yeah. I clicked it and started doing some research and looking around and realized that just by like a couple of clicks, I was able to find different perspectives that were also statistically supported and kind of go a little deeper, you know, deeper into the rabbit hole. But I think that sometimes we're so content to have our biases confirmed and so content to just like hide behind somebody else who's already done the work that we're not doing the hard work for ourselves. Um, And that, you know, that goes for me too. Like it's so easy for me to just Google find a link that seems to agree with my point of view and post yeah. it without any integrity. Um, but it's, it's really important to have that integrity and to look a little deeper and to do the work for ourselves and to do the work first. I would love to see Christians on the front lines of, I am not a statistician. That is not my gifting. Uh, but I would love to see Christians who who are um, doing more of this hard work for themselves instead of just kind of like, copying and pasting what somebody else mm. already done. And, you know, I'm, I'm interested how much of that perspective is because you're a teacher at a, at a classical Christian school. And, and well, let, let's talk about, you know, Thurman and Jesus and the disinherited. I, I think when people approach that book, and, and actually this is in Vincent Harding's forward to the book, he says, you know, when, when people op- open up this book, they, they read it through through current eyes and expect uh, mm-hmm. uh, a certain kind of message. But you, you read books like Jesus and Disinherited. And then obviously, you know, if you go to uh, Augustine and Plato, and, <laughs> you, you yeah. know, you, you read history and see a that a, a lot of current dynamics are not new dynamics. And then you're able to sort of pull out and see what might be relevant to the current situation, but also what uh, how how previous generations have dealt with very uh, 
uh, similar circumstances and the ways that we've gotten it wrong in the past. I think that's a that's a missing sort of stream of uh, thought in a lot of our current debates, this sort of idea that these issues have never been discussed before and, and that people haven't made decisions that had unintended consequences and that we might be prone to the same thing. So I, I'm just on a train of thought here, but I'm just interested in, in, in sort of how connected your analysis is to your model of teaching and, and the kind of curriculum that you're teaching to, to kids. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think so. And um, it is a testament to my pickiness for curriculum too, because I <laughs> never, like I never find one that I just want to use. So every year I end up doing research and teaching from, and every year I'm like, there's going to be a textbook that I like, and I'm just going to go <laughs> not do all this work. It's going to happen someday. Um, but just, you know, just that research space at, at and learning more about our history and our nation's history, you know, the things like, I, I hear a lot of times people are blaming the media, like, oh, the media is trumping everything up. The media is the problem. If it weren't for the media, we wouldn't know about any of this stuff, or we wouldn't be like thinking that it's, you know, the, as big a deal as it is. And for the people decrying the media, you know, looking back at the civil rights movement, the media paid, played such a pivotal role in mm. bringing the barbarism of the American South into people's living rooms and forcing them to come face to face with themselves. And they did not like what they saw. And so while we're decrying the media, I, I know it can be slanted. It can be um, it's, you know, on on all sides, it can be (laughs) completely slanted. Um, Also, being grateful for these images that may be bringing attention to something that we might otherwise be blind to or stick our heads in the sand because of, uh, and having that historical perspective, I think can help us to have um, gratitude instead of just, like you said, seeing ourselves as the first people to ever come in contact with these um, thoughts and ideas. Right. Yeah. Uh, Philip, it's, I want to ask about uh, sort of more personally, but but before that, even zooming out, you know, a, a bit further, your point about sort of political paradigms, it's it sort of imposing their will uh, on, on folks. Um, what do you think are the theological sort of resources that, that push, that push against that? I mean, I mean, what, how, how ought, you know, pastors be talking, be thinking through shepherding congregations on, on this topic? I think that one of the most important things, and this is something that we hear uh, quite often, but I think that uh, reading Black authors, reading, forcing yourself to read things that you disagree with and actually wrestle uh, with them is one of the best ways. I don't think that there's a book uh, or a resource uh, that's going to transform uh, a person. I think it's going to be different things for different people. Uh, but you know, white evangelicalism, uh, we have to continue to encourage them to step outside of their comfort zones because it's so easy, uh, for many of our white, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, to continue doing, uh, what they're doing. Um, and as you guys have already alluded to, because of social media, 
and because of the news media, a lot of the stuff that that they could ignore on a day to day basis because it's probably not happening. It may not be happening right next door. It may be happening across the you know track or something like that because it's not interfering with their day to day lives. Most often, uh, they can just simply ignore it uh, and pretend it doesn't exist uh, and encourage their people to, or, or at least not encourage their people to to think. Uh, critically uh, through these things. Um, so what happens is, is that when these tragedies and, and when these injustices happen, uh, the, f- the first thing that their people are doing in order to understand and the process what's going on is that they tune in to CNN or Fox News. Um, and, and when the media begins discipling our people uh, on matters of uh, mm-hmm. worldview yeah. and how we should view justice and how we should view mercy, um, we we're going to have the church begins to look a lot more like Capitol Hill uh, than the other way around. Um, and I've seen this happen over and over again, just as I've engaged people um, mm-hmm. that they haven't been forced to really think for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, what they do oftentimes is uh, repeat or parrot uh, what they've heard. Uh, they go in, as Jasmine's already alluded to, copy and paste statistics, uh, but they've never actually taken a deeper look. African-Americans oftentimes are forced, especially those of us who are uh, engaged um, at this level, we're forced to interact and think through those things. Those of us that don't engage and don't critically uh, push back on some of uh, those statistics uh, that have not been um, uh, analyzed carefully, uh, we end up falling in for the trap and a form of self-hatred uh, begins to develop uh, inside of us because we do believe uh, all of the hype. But if, if somebody is actually like looking carefully at the facts, looking carefully at the statistics uh, and, and also recognize that stats are not gospel, right? You can do anything with stacks and, and create a narrative by cherry picking. Um, and, and I've, and I've seen that done over and over again. I see all the time. I'm a yeah, marketer, right. right? So stats right. is a part of my job. That's I need right. to, I need to know what's working and what's not working from a data perspective, but yeah. I guarantee you, I can make something look really good. That's not actually doing that well uh, by choosing to right. leave certain things out or take things out of context. And I see it happen all the, all the time in commentary, um, uh, by armchair, um, political and, and social ex- experts within the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jasmine, you know, f- folks are going to have to vote in this presidential election in five months. And uh, how, how do you talk to people who, who say, look, like I'm, I believe that the, the, the issues of, of racial justice and, and criminal justice are, are important, but, but that's not all that's on the ballot. It's complicated. Uh, how do you think issues and the events of the last week or two ought to influence how people not just uh, approach politics, but approach approach elections, approach approach the, the the you know the binary process of voting? Yeah, I think that um, I don't know anybody that's not holding their nose to vote in the, this election this year. Um, so it is kind of a difficult election to use as an example because um, sometimes the options just don't seem that good, right? So I'll steer it back towards locally. Local elections are so much more important on a day-to-day basis and people tend to forget about that. And so really looking at the legislation that's going on in your area and how you can get 
actively involved in bringing about the change that that you want to see. I think that, um, like Philip said, you know, there's people kind of sitting these armchair philosophers just kind of, you know, going back and forth about what's best and how to fix what's wrong and how to fix it, uh, you know, from an ideological perspective, but not really getting actively involved in um, what it looks like to fix it on the ground, what it looks like to really take into account the things that are going on in Black neighborhoods um, for us in Jackson, Mississippi, and figuring out, okay, what's the legislation on the docket that's going to really impact these people that I claim to care about? Um, What are things that I can do to get more involved? You know, from my perspective, I'm a mom, I have two young kids. And so there is a limited amount of research that's going on and research that's happening. Um, So for me, even just being supporting people who are involved in making these changes. So for instance, my um, OB um, she is actively involved in writing the statistic that Black women are 300 times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts. That is a tangible thing that having a Black healthcare worker helps. That is a tangible way that I can make a choice and raise awareness and you know, be a part of this change that I'm saying needs to happen. And so different people at different stages of their life are going to be involved in different ways. Uh, I want to become a birth worker someday after my sons are a little bit older. Um, but you know, looking towards the future and making actual concrete plans. Yeah, it's it. We could go on a whole other trajectory. I've, I've long been passionate about sort of family friendly policy and maternal and child health, mm-hmm. uh, actually going through it. And we have, uh, you have a four-year-old and, and both of our, uh, my, my only child and your youngest are both 18 months going through it and, and seeing, you know, finding out along the process, how much uh, science and medicine still don't know about pregnancy. (laughs) Really, you know, really. And the reason why is because government hasn't prioritized funding the research. (laughs) So I've been, I was fired up before, but I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm now a, a, uh, an evangelist for increased funding for maternal and child health research because it's just, it's just support like we all we all were born like yes. <laughs> it would seem yes. to be a pretty pretty significant priority that we figure out how this how this stuff works um, but uh uh but, but we'll 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 t- maybe that'll be a, a separate conversation uh for sure yeah <laughs> one of my definitely one of my passion areas for yes. sure Philip is laughing because that's like my drum yep. that i beat <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to trade books. And yeah, there's a lot we could talk about. <laughs> but uh, Philip, I want to take it, uh, you know, we're, we're nearing the end of the conversation. I want to um, give give you both an opportunity to talk. Well, well first, if, if you want to say anything about sort of the presidential election specifically, we would welcome that. But but what would also ask you about, you know, Christians in their daily lives, you, you know, uh, Christians are in public, they're citizens, they have political and social uh, responsibilities in, in the public square. But in, in one-on-one conversations, and we're think, when we're thinking about the discipling people and helping people figure out what this means for their, uh, what these kinds of conversations mean for their daily lives, what's the kind of, I mean, you've given some advice already, but 
but what what does it mean for Christians to uh, be be reflecting on and, and be be actively pursuing God's heart in, in, in light of what we, we we've seen? Well, I think two things. Number one, you know, going back to your previous question, I don't think that Christians can continue to justify uh, being uh, strictly uh, one party. Uh, Voters, I, I think mm-hmm. that we have to be discerning and we have to, as Jasmine alluded to, looking at local, looking at state and then looking at national and basically making our decisions based on what that person has the power to do uh, and what they stand for and believe in. Um, because oftentimes you're going to find out that people are voting one side uh, just because it's the best option on that side. Right. Uh, without considering that there may be someone on the other side who would be fit, who would be a better fit for that role. And when it comes to day to day lives and interacting with uh, Christians and, and talking to white brothers and sisters about these things and helping them think through these things, I would just say that I think that it's important for us to listen so that we actually understand where it is that they're coming from. And I think this has to be a two-way street anytime you're going to be able to uh, make any type of progress in a conversation. And, and I say this not because, you know, there's there's the white people need to sit down and shut up um, and just listen. I, 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 I don't, I need you yeah, talking yeah. so I can understand what the problem is, right? I can't make a diagnosis Right. So I, I need I need you comfortable. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. I need you uh, feeling like you can tell me anything yeah. um, so that I can accurately know how to apply the scalpel. Uh, but if I'm the only one I, and this, you know, this is a part of uh, when I'm meeting with clients. If I go into a client meeting and just because I'm the expert, if I come in doing all the talking, I'm not going to know what they actually need help with. I'm also going to waste a lot of time because the things that right. I'm trying to address may be the things that we already agree on. Um, but if I take some time to to listen, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can find out where the blind spots are, uh, where the barriers are, uh, and can really do a better job of, again, diagnosing the problem and and answering that person directly. Like, and, and, then, and then the other part of it, is I think we just need to be more comfortable with confrontation. Um, man, I've seen so many of my mm-hmm. uh, black brothers and sisters do more um, confrontation on social media than that, than I've ever seen them do in person. And that grieves me. And I know where that's coming from because I, I've, you know, I, I was telling a, a group of brothers that I have a threat with, I was like, man, I feel like I have a, a, a PhD at this point in white Presbyterianism because, <laughs> and, 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 and un, honestly, man, because I, I've, you know, I entered into, I, I grew up in an all black neighborhood. I wasn't really around um, uh, white people in general uh, until I was 18, 19 years old. Yeah. Um, but ever since I was uh, 18 and I uh, was at a, a, a small uh, liberal arts uh, college here in Jackson, Mississippi, where I played basketball, um, I've been uh, a part of a white reformed evangelical uh, culture ever since then. Yeah. I engage and deal with a whole lot of uh, white brothers and sisters. And, you know, as it through all of my engagements, 
I know what it's like to be the guy in the room and to hear <laughs> ignorant things, even from well-meaning people, sometimes from <laughs> people who are not so well-meaning right. is, is the best way I can say it politely. Um, That's right. And, yeah. and yeah, to yeah, yeah. not really feel, want to waste your breath because you're tired, right? Um, but at the same yeah. time, I think that if we are more direct, um, if we are more uh, more uh, confrontational when we feel like um, truth isn't being spoken, um, I think, and, and we don't play the political mm. game that's oftentimes so prevalent in in these uh, 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 cultures and institutions and denominations, um, I think that we will either realize mm. quicker whether or not we're supposed to be there and wh- whether or not we need to stay or whether or not it's time for us to leave and move on. Um, because I think that when guys are yeah. quiet and you let stuff linger and you don't say anything and you quietly like, you know, try to forgive and forget what grows over time is guys get bitter and they get burnt out. And, and, but I've, the reason yeah. why I've lasted yeah, yeah. so long and, and it's, you know, it's because, you know, I'm, I'm okay with guys not liking me. Um, and, and, and yeah, and it hurts <laughs> and it's, yeah. it gets, it gets tiring as well, but, uh, Sure. Yeah, I make a lot. Of, sure, I make. A, sure. I, I find out that, that a lot of these guys are, are a lot more willing to repent, repent uh, than I probably would have given them credit for. And mm-hmm. it's a balance. You have some guys that still don't like you in the end, and and don't want to repent, and, and 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 don't appreciate the confrontation. Um, but I think there are a lot of brothers and sisters out there that appreciate the directness, um, and and that kind of gives you hope. Jasmine, just you know, again, you you wrote a powerful book, and, and I, I've just been. Mother to Son, Letters to a Black Boy on Identity and Hope. Uh, we both have books with, with hope in the, in the title or, or, or subhead, uh, subtitle. What have you been thinking about? I mean, both your boys are, are still, you know, really, really uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, relatively young. But, but what have you been thinking about? Not just your your boys, but what is the message to next generation that is maybe seeing seeing a crisis like this unfold for 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 the first time in their young young lives? Uh, what have you been thinking about what to what to what to tell young black boys and girls about about this moment? I'm honestly hoping that they can look back on this moment and see that what we're doing right now is not working. Um, what we're doing right now with this two party system what we're doing right now with this tribalistic thinking, what we're doing right now with this, honestly, this laziness and letting whatever party we affiliate with do the thinking and talking points for us is not working. And so my hope is that our boys inherit something different, you know, and are able to take part in crafting something different and are able to take part in um, just, revolutionizing the way that we think about these issues. Cause I think that we've been too content for too long to kind of rest, rest on our laurels and let, like Philip said, let the media do the thinking for us and let the media do the, um, just do the homework for us. And so as I raise my sons, I'm really hoping to give them the resources that they need to understand the country that they live in and the way that it works to be grateful in all the ways that they should be grateful and to be willing to make a change in all the ways that, um, that that entails as well. And to just transcend kind of the tribalistic mindset that I really think is a huge 
part of the problem right now in the church. There is something really powerful about that 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 phrase you said inherit something new. I'm thinking of the phrase, you know, a new inheritance. Um uh, and there's something there's something really beautiful um and promising about that. Would either of you have have any sort of uh, I mean I think that's a good note to end on but just want to give you both an opportunity uh, for any sort of closing thoughts. I'm so grateful that you spent the time and, and shared so much knowledge and wisdom with, uh, with, with me and with, with the listeners of this podcast. But any, any closing thoughts from, from either of you? Uh, I just want to make sure that um, it is blatantly said that the gospel of Christ is what commands us to be involved in these changes and to care for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's what commands us to kind of reach across (laughs) the aisle for our brothers and sisters in the faith and to grow an understanding of like, really, it's, it's really about, um, about pleasing him. And I know that that's kind of in the subtext, but I just wanted to make sure that it was explicitly stated that that's, I mean, that's the goal here is unity in Christ. Sometimes we talk about these things as if they're a strategic imperative. Mm -hmm. You know, or, or that it, it's a way to just get somewhere, um, and and it's it's really important to make that subtext uh, the, the the text. I, I really appreciate that, uh, Philip. Philip, uh, a- anything to add? Yeah, I I would say you know, and th- this is a struggle probably for most Christians, but if we've ever needed it, uh, uh, I think we need it now more more than ever. Um, is the importance of prayer. Uh, and yeah. I say this to, yeah. to people on both sides of the aisle, regardless of where it is that you stand right now, um, to those who are wrestling with these things or who, you know, feel like, uh, this is uh, not that big of a deal. I, I mean, I challenge them to pray and, and, and ask the Lord to search their heart, um, and to, to give them eyes to see if they're missing something to at least, if you're not willing to exercise humility, uh, in public, um, maybe uh, start starting in private prayer uh, and saying, Lord, I think that I'm right, but if I'm wrong, please show me. Um, you know, and I think on the other side of the aisle, uh, for Christians who um, clearly see the injustice and recognize it, uh, to not forget about the importance of prayer. Um, so mm. one, one of the other, one of the most encouraging things that I've seen this week was my dear friend Corey Porter. Um, a picture that one of the um, RTS uh, executive directors sent me was uh, the prayerful protest that her and Russell uh, and some others uh, did in New York. We, we we love we love Corey Porter here at the podcast. Oh, oh I know y'all love Corey, Corey Porter. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, man. So Corey, Corey's amazing. Uh, we've been we've been we've known Corey for a long time. Uh, but yeah, but that's you know pray pray and protest. Um, yeah. But don't ever let uh, the world shame us into thinking that somehow prayer is less powerful, um, that that's just yes. for the saints of old. Um, you, you have to remember that uh, much of the civil rights movement that, that actually made a lot of the progress was uh, built around people who believed in the power of prayer. And, and yes. you know, I said this on Twitter the other day, God can do so much more. Uh, with our private prayers uh, than he can do with our public protests. And and that's yeah. not negating the importance of protesting um, and speaking truth to power um, and doing that uh, as peacefully as we can. Um, 
by all means, absolutely do it. Uh, but don't think that you're less of a Christian or you care less about justice if you're in the stage of life where you can't do those things. Um, but you can spend spend plenty of time in prayer. Um, and because of the amount of usage on social media, we, we all have time to pray, right? Yeah, I really hope folks will. What, what, what Philip just issued is an invitation to ask yourself if that's really true for you. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, I, I, I think I think uh, oftentimes uh, as Christians, we can nod our head when someone says something like that. Yeah. But it's a good opportunity to, to ask, do, do, do you really believe that? And if not, that's not a, a condemnation. That's not something to feel guilty about. It's something to bring to the Lord. And yeah. and, and, and it, it's an opportunity to to put your trust in him in a, in a different way than maybe you have before. So, <laughs> I mean, I feel really deeply about this and, and it's something I've wrestled with. So I don't mean to, I don't mean to, uh, I mean, what we could, what we could turn this into a preaching podcast, <laughs> <pretty quickly. laughs> but, but I, I so appreciate, so appreciate uh, that, that word, Philip. Um, listen to both of you. I, Again, this was relatively short notice. I appreciate your graciousness in coming on such short notice. And really, thank you for the work that, that y'all do. Thank you for the wisdom you shared here. And and um, uh, I guess the last thing would be, how, what's the best way for folks to stay up with with you and, and your, your work? What's the best way for folks to, to be in touch? It's, it's hard to say. I mean, I'm, I'm I think we're laughing because I, it's really hard to stay in touch with me, but I'm trying to do better. So I have. Um, so I mean, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Jasmine L. Holmes on all those platforms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. And, and again, uh, a really wonderful book would urge people to to to, to pick that up. And then, then Philip, what's the best way to stay in touch with you? Yeah, just primarily Twitter um, or LinkedIn if you use that. Um. Yeah, those those are the main two ways at this point. And, and, you know, I'll 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 say it because you, you know there are Christian ministries uh, and nonprofits listening to this podcast, and some of y'all your y- your websites just aren't working, and <laughs> y- y'all could use some help. <laughs> y- y- y'all could use some help. So, so, uh, so you know you can stay in touch with Philip in, in that way too. Uh, hey y'all. Thank you. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so much. And, uh, and looking forward to, to staying in touch and, and uh, hope to have you on again in, in, in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. We appreciate it, man. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Really grateful to Philip and Jasmine. We're going to be back uh, with another episode. There will be even more to discuss. Uh, we are now five months out from uh, from the election, um, from the presidential election. Uh, and so we're going to be with you the whole way. I'm so grateful to you. Again, um, as always, you could leave a review on iTunes for the podcast. That would be uh, helpful. Uh, feel free to uh, subscribe at reclaiminghope.substack.com if you... Uh, want to hear from me more regularly with news and analysis about the intersection of faith and politics. And uh, just know that know that I'm with you. Let's let's leave it there. Folks, until next time, this is the Faith 2020 podcast. Thank you. Thank you.